Welcome to the Bethel Podcast. Thank you for taking time out of your day to spend time in God's Word. We hope that today's message blesses you and lifts you. I appreciate uh, people who agree to come and share their story. Do you know that everybody's got a story? You have a story. It's the story of your walk and your walk with God. It's the story of what God's, the miracle God's done in your life. And let me tell you something. I'm thankful for it, and I want to tell you something. Keep telling your story because there's a world that needs to hear it. And Amy Williams has got a story to tell, uh, the same story that you and I have, to, have, have told. It just came in a little different way, but it's the same story of Jesus who saves, heals, and delivers. And so I'm so glad she came tonight. She brought some family members and some friends. Is your mother Gwen? Would you stand up? Would you give her a good God bless you today? She brought some other friends as well, but we're so glad that she's here today. Keep your hands. Would you go ahead and just give her a good hand clap as she comes? Miss Amy Williams. Praise God. I'm going to get these Kleenexes because I know that that's going to be bad. Um, I just want to say, first and foremost, how honored I am to be here because this is, it's still a very surreal moment. I should not be here. I still had 13 years to do in prison, and so it is a complete miracle, way maker, promise keeper, all those things that we just said, I have visibly seen God be in my life. And so I'm honored to be here. It is, it's a dream come true, but I'm so blessed tonight because my mom is here. And it is her first time hearing me tell my testimony. So this is very important to me. Um, So if I can pray for us, and then I'm just going to get started. God, I thank you for this moment, God, that you have predestined. God, I thank you for this group of people that are here, God, that are here to worship you and to hear a story of redemption and how you move in a broken life, God. I pray that you give me every word that I need to say, that you guide me in this, and that you give me the grace that I need to get through it. And it is in Jesus' name that I pray, amen. Okay, so to tell my story, I have to start from the very beginning so you can get the whole picture. So um, I'll start with my childhood. I was born in Dallas. I'm a diehard cowboy fan, so don't say anything against them. Um, But um, due to a certain events that happened, we ended up coming and staying in Little Rock when I was young, and that's where I grew up. I'm the only child. I'm 34 years old right now, um, and I came from probably the closest thing to perfect that you could imagine. Um, Very spoiled, so that probably didn't help any, but my parents did anything and everything that they could think of to provide me the best childhood. So I went to a private school from pre-K, very little girl. Um, They kept me constantly involved in activities, surrounded by good godly people, church camp, all the things that you can provide for your child to lead them in the right direction. My summers were spent on a softball field, traveling around from one softball field to another. That was my whole life. So if you knew me, you knew that I was involved in sports that I went to a good school, and that I had good parents. Um, I have been around many women since I've been in prison that tell their stories about their childhoods, and 90% of the women in prison have very broken homes that come from very broken childhoods. That is not my story. Um, 
I had a wonderful father that when I think about now, looking back, perfect, perfect dad. He was invested in my life. He was there for every important event. He was my softball coach. He would bend over backwards to make sure that I had the whole world at my fingertips. And I'm so grateful that I was raised the way that I was. Now, fast forward to when I was nine years old. We were living in Little Rock, and some of y'all may remember the March 1st, 97 tornadoes. There was like 14 that came through the state at once. Oh, my goodness, I just saw some wind. And I, oh. Okay, so I'm sorry. Um, and it was a Saturday, and I will never forget it. It just it hit so fast. And I remember that day that me and my mom and my dad were in the living room, and it just it came upon us. Me and mom go to the bathroom, and dad goes to look out the front door for some reason, probably because he's crazy. And next thing I know, he's running in, and he lays over us in the bathtub. And I can remember looking up. I was in the middle. And I remember looking up and seeing the roof blow off the house. And I had such this feeling of, like, I felt the presence of God in that bathtub. And when we got up, when it passed, the only room standing in that house was that bathroom. So had we went to any other room, a closet, a bedroom, had we went anywhere else, we would not have survived that storm. And I remember that moment realizing that there was a God and he was powerful and he was over all creation. And so... Fast forward, because of that event, we had to relocate. So we ended up moving to the Benton Bryant area, and my parents, they tried so hard to keep me in this private school, but it just became too much traveling back and forth to Little Rock every day. And so um, when I was a young teenager, I entered into public schools. Now, if anyone knows, if anyone's ever been from a private to a public school, you know, the, the vast different, like it is, it's a whole new world. And so I had been so sheltered in my childhood, not even realizing that the door was about to open to all these different choices, all these different temptations. I remember the first one I got off the school bus and a girl that I rode the bus with, she said, Hey, you want to come to my house and smoke a joint? And I was like, Oh, what? Like I had, I had no clue because I was that Sheltered. I didn't come from anybody from addiction. I was never around that type of environment. No smoking, drinking, anything like that. And in my young preteen mind, I thought, what could it hurt? And um, I, I started smoking weed about the age of 13, 14. And if anyone's ever battled with addiction, you know that it just takes that first time. And the next thing you're doing is because the weed is kind of getting boring, now you're going to start taking pills and drinking, and it just continues to expand. And so that's what happened. But I hid it from my parents, and I don't think that they knew for quite a while what I was doing. I was, I was being very sneaky. But it got out of hand to where I started stealing money, I started stealing their car, I started skipping school, because it just snowballed. You can't start in that lifestyle and think that you have any control, but I believe that. I believe that I could control it. Um, my teenage years were rough. Uh, it's, it's a dark time for me because I remember both sides. I remember the battle that I was in inwardly, and then I remember my parents and the battle they were in trying to help me. And remember, they had no frame of reference for addiction. They had no idea how to help a kid that was trapped in this self-destructing cycle. And so this, 
you know, I went to a behavior facility for like two weeks. That didn't do anything. Well, then I got out, continued the same things. And this one night, I remember me and my mom had an argument, probably because I was doing something I wasn't supposed to, and I stole the car. And I went out, and I remember smoking with some people, did not know that it was laced with PCP, which is a whole other element that I had never been exposed to. And I remember leaving that house. Next thing you know, I woke up the next morning in the back of the, my mom's car with urine all over me in the Kmart parking lot that was 30 miles from the house that I was in. I have no clue how I got there. And when I woke up that morning, I drove home, and I'll never forget walking in, and my mom and dad were both sitting in the living room. And during this time, their marriage had become strained, and a lot of it was due to my actions, and they separated. So I was currently living with my mom during this time, and my dad was there. And I remember the look on his face. It was a look of complete brokenness, of, of helplessness, of what can I do to save my daughter? And they set me down, and they said, you know, we're going to we're going to get the courts to help us file a Finn's petition because we don't we were out of options. We don't know what to do, and that started that started the the road to the end for me because that led me to a six month treatment facility called Pinnacle Point. Um, I was there six months, and while I was there. Very quickly, they sit down, they ask you a few questions, and then they medicate you. And that's still what they do. These kids that go to these facilities, the answer to their problems, so they think, is to give them some form of medication. And so they placed me on Prozac, a sleeping pill, like several different pills. But what I remember the most is the Prozac. So I did six months there. Sorry, my mouth is dry. I did six months um, in this facility. And one of the things we did while we were there is that we went on a group tour. And we went to the McPherson unit in Newport, Arkansas. You had a group of about 15 teenagers go into this prison, sit down in a room kind of this size, and then you had a panel of ladies that were inmates. And their whole mission was to scare us to death to where we would never come back to prison. And I remember sitting on the other side of those ladies that had life sentences, that were in there for murder, that were in there, you know, because of all these horrible things they had done, and I felt one thing for them. I felt sorry for them. I remember getting very emotional hearing their stories because I thought, how could that happen to somebody? How could somebody do something to end up spending their life in prison? And we went on a tour of the prison. They walked us through to the barracks. They had us looking around at all these ladies. I remember seeing pregnant women in prison, and my 15-year-old mind could not comprehend how someone pregnant can be incarcerated. And it was an impactful moment for me emotionally. But what it did not do, it did not resonate personally for me. I never could see myself in their shoes. That was where I messed up because it would be five months after that tour that I would become incarcerated myself. And I look back on that moment and I think about the power of God, what he was showing me in that moment as a 15-year-old kid walking me through the very place I would spend 18 years. That was powerful, but I missed it. 
I didn't see it for what it was worth. I didn't see the warning signs, and I didn't take heed to what the Lord was trying to show me. So I get out of this rehab for kids, this behavior facility, and I don't think I was even out a month before I started the same pattern, the same pattern, back to the same thing. And my parents at this point were completely broken. Their only kid, this kid that they had poured their life into, providing every resource, opportunity to be everything that they could imagine me to be, I tossed it all in the wind, and I just lived my own way. And by this point, their marriage had completely fallen apart. They couldn't handle the pressure of raising a rebellious kid and all that comes with that. And so quickly, I just got right back into my old way of life. Once again, me and my mom get into this argument because I, I took her through hell, literally hell. And uh, she said, Amy, I can't do it anymore. You don't listen to me. You don't respect me. I can't control you. I have, I'm helpless. You've got to go stay with your dad. And she took me to my dad's. And um, my dad very loving father very loving but he also he also was more of the backbone for me I was a daddy's girl and so I took more heed to what he would tell me and I remember coming in that house and I had such a darkness over me and if you have any clue about spiritual warfare you understand the constant battle that is always around us there's spiritual warfare every day all day everywhere and so I remember one night sleeping on the couch in, in my dad's living room, and I can remember in this hallway that I could see from the couch this blackness, and it just took over this hallway, and I remember feeling this God-awful, evil presence in that house, and I didn't know what to make of it, but I remember that moment very clearly. It was a very vivid moment for me, and as I'm laying on that couch and I felt that feeling, I didn't quite know what to do with it, but... <laughs> Fast forward a few days, and my dad gets up, goes to work, and I get up. I remember this day very clearly. Um, I had such trapped up, is the best way I can say, this trapped up rage inside of me and it was directed at no one in particular it was not because I hated my mom or I hated my dad or I hated my life or I it was just I was just so bottled up with this rage I could not identify what it was and the thought came kill your dad I had no idea what to make of that because something should have happened in that moment when I woke up and I'm feeling this stuff inside of me that I don't have any clue what it is and the thought comes, kill your dad. There should have been something in my heart that connected to my head that said, what are you thinking? That's not who you are. You love your father. That's insane. That's you, There was nothing. There was just this void, this numbness, and that thought seemed like the next thing to do. And what happened is that I started planning it in my mind. I started thinking about getting the gun. How would I load it? How would I, how would I shoot it? And I practiced shooting this gun all day long while my dad was at work. My dad comes home. And he said normal things. Hi, hon, how was your day? And he does this normal routine, getting something to drink, getting ready to head into the living room. And it was like something else was in control of my life that day. 
And I walked in the living room behind him and I shot him in the back. And when I saw him fall, something in me shifted. And it was like in that moment, I realized the impact of what had just happened. And I heard these sounds and I saw my dad laying there and I panicked because what I should have done was pick up the phone, call 911 and say, I just freaked out and shot my dad. That's not what I did, because in my 16-year-old mind, I thought it would be better for him to just be gone. And so I shot him again. (laughs) So I panic, and I grab his keys, and I grab his wallet, because now I know I cannot stay here. I've got to go. What am I going to tell somebody? How am I going to explain this? I have to make up a lie because I have no reason for what I just did. It makes no sense. I can't rationalize it. I have no clue what to tell anyone that asks me. And so I get in my dad's truck. I realize that the gas is almost empty. And so I have to go to the ATM, get some money out because I've got to fill up the gas tank. In the process of me running around the Bryant area trying to figure out what I'm going to do and how I'm going to run, where am I going to go, how am I going to get away, God had once again predestined a moment for me. My mom was coming home from work that day, and she passed me, and she knew, she knew that I shouldn't have been driving my dad's truck, and we pull over on the side of the road. And I can remember this look on her face like she knew something wasn't right. And all I could tell her was, we got to get the cops. We got to call the cops. Dad, something's wrong with dad. And I made up this story about someone breaking in because how do I tell my mom that I've just killed my dad? And so the cops come. They, we follow them out to the house. We get there. And, of course, it's too late. It's too late at this point. And I can remember the questions. What happened? And this 16-year-old kid is trying to make up these ridiculous stories. Because looking now, I've watched enough Dateline and stuff to know, like, you, you cover up. You do stuff. I mean, the gun's laying there. Like, I had, there was no rationale to what I did. I left it all right there. There was no sneakiness to what I was doing. It was like someone stepped into my life, committed this crime, and then stepped out. And I tried to lie for a few hours, take me to the interrogation room, and finally I end up just telling them I did it. Um, and then they say, why? Why? Why'd you kill your dad? What'd he do to you? What was going on? And I can remember thinking, what am I going to tell them? I have to have a reason now. Now I have to come up with the reason that I did it. Now I've admitted I've done it, but what do I tell them why I did it? So I said this sentence, he pissed me off. They record it down in their little notes, and that is forever in my file. And that is the farthest thing from the truth. My dad did not piss me off that day. We had not gotten into it. And so then it just started the legal process. Um, I'll never forget that first, that night, my mom coming to the jail. And I just remember feeling such 
a peace about knowing that my mom was going to stick this out with me. And I just want to tell y'all that she has never let me for one second this whole time be alone in this. And I don't know how she's done it. I don't know. That's another type of strength that I cannot imagine because she is fully justified if she would have walked away from me that day. But she did not do that. And so... I don't think she fully knows how much that means to me. I was incarcerated with women that did drugs or wrote hot checks, and their families had completely disowned them. And here I was for something far worse that had the most grounded, solid, faithful mother that there is. And so I'm forever grateful for that. And so fast forward. I'm in juvenile, waiting for some trial date or waiting for a plea bargain, and they've appointed me this public defender. I will spare you all the messy details other than there was a moment he set me down and he said, just say that he raped you or something. I can get you out of this. And I remember in that moment, I did not hesitate for one second to tell him to go shove that you know where. And it was like I knew that I had done this horrible thing, but I would never, ever, ever put that on my dad's name because that was not the truth. And so... He said, okay, well, I guess I'll just talk to the prosecutor and we'll just see what they can work out. He came back with a 60-year plea bargain. He sits me and my mom down and he goes over this and he tells us one thing. If she doesn't take this, she will get a life sentence and die in prison. My mother, who has no frame of reference for anything in the legal system, is terrified at the thought of her only kid dying in prison, and we decide right then we're going to sign it. Well, now I know you don't ever take the first offer and all these things. We didn't know that then. I was a kid. My mom had no reference for what to do, and so I signed this plea bargain to spend 60 years in prison. I entered into Newport McPherson facility at the age of 18 walking the very same halls I'd walked when I was 15 on that, that tour. And I'm here to tell you that the first five years of my incarceration were the fakest, most pretending I've ever done because now I'm in just survival mode. I'm just trying to figure out how am I going to make, make this work for me. And so I got involved in Everything you can think of in prison. I became that person. I morphed into this prison lifestyle because I felt like that was the easiest, most safest way to do your time. And I had all this time to do. And so I became like the system. And I was locked up five years. And no one that knew me then would have ever known this weight that I carried on the inside, this hatred for myself that I had killed my father, this man that I loved. I had taken his life, and I couldn't rationalize how I was a monster inside. And so for five years, I hated myself. I carried this guilt. I didn't understand how I was going to process or how I was going to get through this and become anything other than this mess of a monster. And then something happened. The grace of God stepped into my life. And this is this moment where you can't deny God. You know how he does these major things in your life and you look back and you know that that had to be God? Well, this is that moment for me. So I had this dream that I was in a grocery store and I saw my, my mom, me and my mom were shopping and I saw my dad down an aisle. And I was so excited and I ran to see him and I was like, can you come, Dad? Are you coming with us? And with tears in his eyes, he said, I cannot come. I just wanted to see you so I could tell you that I miss you. 
And I woke up from that dream feeling like that I had been in the presence of my father told my mom on the phone about it and I'm telling her and I'm like mom and the thing is he had gray hair like he would have actually aged in real life like it was him if he would have still been alive and it was just a neat moment I remember that and two weeks later and she's here Kenzie's here this is so this is a God moment and I'm sure you remember this letter that you sent me she wrote me and she said Hey, I had a dream about your dad. She said, I walked into the living room, and he was sitting on the couch crying, looking at your baby pictures that were on the mantle. And he looked at me and said, Kenzie, I miss her so much. And she goes on to talk about other things in the letter, but then it's like an afterthought. At the very end, she says, P.S., I don't know if this means anything, but he had gray hair. And I thought... Wow, that's confirmation that there is something supernatural happening. Fast forward about a month after that, I get a letter from my dad's side of the family, a cousin that had not spoken to me since my crime happened. And this letter is very brief. It says, will you respond? Because I have to tell you this. I, I won't be able to rest until I tell you. So I write her back. She writes me back, and she tells me about these dreams that she keeps having about my dad. And in the dream, she says she walks in, and I'm sitting at a bathtub, and I'm cutting my wrist, and there, there's blood everywhere. And she walks in, and she's trying to stop me from bleeding, and she said that my dad walked into the bathroom entryway and said, you have to tell her I forgive her. And when I tell you in that moment, something lifted off of me. I felt like for five years I had carried this weight because I didn't know, did my dad know the truth? Did he forgive me? Does he still love me? Is he, is he okay? Is he restored? Does he know? Does he know who I really am or am I this monster to him? And God gave me those moments to let me know not only does he forgive me, but my dad forgives me. And so I look at that moment as such a key moment because I would like to say that I just instantly started living right. And that wouldn't be true. My 20s were crazy in prison. Um, I stayed in this cycle of, some of you might not know this, but drugs do run through prison. And... Um, you can pretty much get anything that you want. And my thing had always been pills. And so I got, um, I got pretty bad on pills in my 20s while I was incarcerated. Um, that was a very dark time for me. I just, I could feel God pulling me, but I just, I resisted. I resisted and I just kept this pattern that I was used to that's comfortable, right? And... Um, also because I wanted to avoid my reality of where I was. So 2016, I remember this conversation. My mom, she tells me, she says, Amy, I got bad news. She says, um, I've been diagnosed with colon cancer. And when I say that's probably the most fearful moment 
that I can remember during my whole prison stay when my mom told me that because if I didn't have her, I didn't have anything. She was my rock. She was my support. She was everything that, that I had in that moment when she said that I panicked. And I remember hitting my knees in my cell and I remember crying out to God and I remember thinking, if you will just heal my mom, because that's what we do. We want to bargain with God. If you will just heal my mom, I will live right. I will surrender to you. I will yield to your purpose for my life if you will just heal my mom. And I'm so thankful to say my mom has been cancer-free for five years today. She's five years cancer-free. Praise God. But guess what happens? God is faithful always. We are unfaithful. And so I didn't keep my end of the bargain. I ended up slipping into the same things again. And then 2017, this, is, this moment right here led me to where I'm at right now. I felt like I audibly heard the voice of God and that I felt how he felt about my sin. It was like this moment where the Holy Spirit just took over and showed me myself for what I was really doing and how sinful and how wretched and how dark of a life I was living and how desperately I needed the grace of God. And I hit my knees once again, but this time I was so broken and I was so desperate for the Holy Spirit to rectify and to ratify my life that I gave into it. I had no clue what it would look like. I didn't know what my next step would be, but I knew that I could not go another second living the way that I was living, whether I was in prison or not. And when I tell you from that moment... There has not been a door that the Lord has not opened for me. It was instantly, right after that, a friend of mine, she said, hey, the Lord put it on my heart to pay for you to go to school if you're interested. And so two years later, I ended up getting my associate degree in theology because of that moment. And I started studying the word of God through another channel of events. I was placed in the PAL program. And there's so many ladies here that... I met through there, and I'm so blessed for each and every one of them. But that program is where I got my foundation because it's class after class after class of you studying in depth the Word of God. Because reality is we can sit in church services or, or we can worship and, and sing songs, but until the Word of God gets engrafted on your heart, you will not truly change. And so that was the key thing for me. I needed the Word of God to transform me. And so as I'm sitting under these classes and I'm listening to the Word of God and I'm getting into to it for myself, things started changing inside of me, and this fire started burning, and I remember telling my mom four or five years ago, that moment, I said, Mom, God is up to something. I had no clue what that was. She'll tell you. I've been telling her that for the past five years. God is doing something, and so I, um, there's a Kairos weekend that we do in prison. Some of the ladies are here from that. And I remember walking in and meeting Kristen for the first time. And that was another divine moment because she did not want to be there. I'm just telling you right now, her mom had tried to get her to come for so many times. And she was like, oh, I don't know about the prison thing. I don't know. I can't. And then because she listened to the Holy Spirit, she was there that weekend. And we crossed paths. 
And when I tell you that's a friendship that I know God handpicked for me in the moment, in the season of my life, and she's the reason that I'm connected now to about 70% of these people in this room, and that's how God's grace does. It's always expanding. And so you think it's just this, but he's got a whole trail of blessings that he's just waiting to add to that. And so that's the door he opened when I met Kristen, and it's just been blessing after blessing. And so... About this time, there's a law that's passed, and it's for people under the age of 18 that got sentenced to life. They couldn't do more than 25 years. So I'm like, wait a minute, like I was 16? This has to apply to me somehow. And um, after probably 100 different letters written to attorneys and people in positions, I kept getting this same answer. This doesn't apply to you because you don't have a life sentence. So what they were telling me was, even though you were under the age of 18, you didn't get life, so you'll do more time than a life sentence now. The crack in the legal system, it happens all the time. And so I started almost getting bitter, but then it was like the Lord was like, no, You're not going to do that. You're going to fight. You're going to fight, and you're going to trust me. And so for three years, I'm just reaching out. I'm telling Kristen, I'm like, this law's changed. Can you look it up? Can you see if there's anything that can apply to me? And bless her heart, she dug in. She reached out, and she kept getting the same answer I did. No, it doesn't apply to her. She'll have to do her time. She didn't get life. And so I thought, okay. I'm going to trust you, God. And I started uh, during this time, I became a mentor in the PAL program. I started teaching classes. And I just felt like I was walking in my purpose. To this day, I have never felt more in my purpose than I did in that prison teaching those ladies the word of God. Never, never have I felt more complete, more fulfilled, because I knew right then that God was getting the glory, that he was using a broken life. And I knew right then that it was going to be okay. Whether I never got out or whatever, in that moment, I had true peace. And um, 2019, 2020, I just felt the Lord molding me. And I don't know if any of y'all have ever, it's like you can just feel it. Like you know, like God is preparing you for something. And I started feeling this, and I said, Kristen, I think I need to put in for clemency. I don't know. No one ever really gets it, but, you know, if they can give me a time reduction or, or something. But I just feel like if I put, put in for it, maybe something will happen. And that process takes a whole year. And so patience is not my best thing, but the Lord has cultivated that in me. Um, and so um, I put in, and I went in front of the parole board because they're the first people that have to approve you. And unanimously... They said, it's time for you to go. And I thought, oh, they're the first step. Now the governor has to sign off on it, which, you know, that's a long shot because I don't, that doesn't happen a lot. But it was like God said, do you trust me or do you not? And long story short, we get to the deadline of his eight months to make a decision. The governor has eight months. And the night before his decision comes out, I get this piece of paper from ADC, and it says, Upon further review, we looked into it, and you actually are eligible for that law that passed for the juvenile lifers. And I thought, are you kidding me? Like... 
for four years almost, I have been fighting and reaching out, and y'all have told me no. And the day before I'm supposed to find out from the governor what he's going to do, y'all are saying now it applies. So I went to bed that night thinking, I've got to do seven more years in prison. Well, seven more is better than what I was looking at. And so, okay, God, I'm grateful. And so that next day, the governor's decision came out, and Kristen was on it. She was waiting for it to come. She had her friends looking for it. And they called me to the chaplain's office, and she's sitting in that room, and I'll never forget that moment because she was trying to be strong for me. And she was like, did you hear? And I was like, no, I got this in the mail. I got seven more years, you know, and I was kind of excited because I was like, anything is better than nothing. And she says, well, he says five more years. I said, what? Five more? Like, okay, so I got five more years. That's better than seven. So I was like, it just keeps getting better. And she's like, so you're okay with that? And I was like, yeah, like, I'm okay with that. And she was like, she was not okay with that. <laughs> she was not. She was like, Amy? Or, or like, she wasn't okay. And she was trying to be strong for me, but I know that she was really, really, really frustrated. But the neat part is that God was probably up there saying, these silly girls, they just aren't going to learn. They just don't, they don't understand my ways. That next day, I think, I found out that all that five-year stuff was kind of like under, underhanded wording for what it translates into would be that I would be immediately eligible for parole. And so... I could not believe it. I remember thinking, I am living in a miracle. You know, you hear about that. You read about it in the Bible. And we struggle so much to think, is this the same God of yesterday that's today? Does he still do the things that he did back then today? And I'm here to tell you that he does. He does do those big life-changing miracles. And I was supposed to do 13 more years, and through God working in officials' hearts, they signed the paper that said, let her out now. And I had to go back in front of the parole board as a formality, and that was another God-ordained thing where he had set up this lady that was so gracious to me, and she didn't even ask me a single question other than, do you have anything to say? And I wept in that room because... It's almost like you're looking at it from another, like you're outside of yourself watching someone else's life. I couldn't believe it was happening to me. And um, through the process, it took a while, but I walked out of prison January 4th, 2022. This year, I've been out two months. And um, I'm trying to think if I left anything out of that moment. It was just, it was almost, it still doesn't feel real. I still wake up some mornings and I'm like, how, how am I here? Like, I shouldn't be here, you know. But I go back to that moment when I hit my knees and I surrendered my life to Christ fully and genuinely. Not just because it suited what I needed at the moment. It was a full-fledged, I am done with myself and I'm needing all of you in my life. And that is when he figured it and worked it all out. And that's what we have to do. And the thing about it is the enemy will tell you, that your worst thing 
is your last thing, that you can't come back from that. And I know there's probably no one else in here that's committed murder, but I'm sure that everybody has that lowest point, whether it's addiction, whether it's cussing, whether it's infidelity, whatever the thing is that the enemy has been lying to you about, thinking that you will never fully come back from that. I'm here to tell you that God says your worst thing is not your last thing because he's the God of redemption. That's where he works the best at. And so my whole story is the story of redemption, how God took the worst thing that I could ever do and he placed me in a, in a prison that would end up being probably the best thing that's ever happened to me. Because in that prison, what he did is he started getting his hands in and he started molding and transforming and renewing and restoring. And he changed my life. He changed my life to where I was sitting in that chair the day the lady walked in and she came in to tell me I was leaving the next day. And I will never forget that moment sitting there. And I felt this feeling of, Nothing, nothing. Me getting out of prison 13 years early, me getting about to have a second chance of life, nothing compares to knowing Christ. God, take it all back if I don't know you. And that is how my heart felt in that moment. This thing that I had been dreaming about happening, this thing that I had been fighting for and looking forward to for all these years was handed to me by the grace of God. And I would have laid it back at his feet if it cost losing him. And I feel like that is why the Lord said, you're ready to go. You're ready to go. And so... I would love to say that it has been just a joyride since I've been out. It's had its challenges because, as you know, the world is not its not always um, accepting, but I have been surrounded by such a great group of people that have just opened arms, taken me in. But I want you to know that, that the enemy's still coming. He's still coming. And my mom doesn't know this, this story. I never shared it with her yet. But I gave my testimony a couple weeks ago. And the day before I was given my testimony, some girl messaged me on Facebook or posts on Facebook. You know, that's awful, social media, whatever. But I guess she had been trolling through and saw that I was giving my testimony. And so she just starts hammering me about my crime someone I didn't even know she probably looked it up read some stories she started throwing every detail true and false facts about everything that I had done oh just throwed it in my face and I'm telling you I realized I still got to fight out here I still got to fight out here. There, there is going to be so many people that the enemy will try to use to attack me and to attack my testimony because God gets all the glory in this. And so the enemy is coming. And the same is true for every single person in this room. He is sneaky. He tries to get you at your lowest point. He tries to blindside you. But trust and believe that you have a God that has your back, that has gone before you, beside you. He will provide. He will do all things for you. And so I have to walk in that. I have to remind myself it doesn't matter what people say. Yes, yes, that's who I was. I did that. That's a part of my past. But I serve a God of redemption. And what he's done and he has come in, he has changed my life. And he has said, now go out and tell people about me. And that's all that I want to do. I'm so excited about what that looks like because the body of Christ is beautiful and our mission is to expand it. That's what we're here for. That's why we're left. It's to share our story. Like Pastor Kerry said, we all have a story, whatever your thing is. But what happens is you will almost sit down in shame and silence because you think 
that your story shouldn't be heard. That's a lie from the pit of hell. You better testify about what God has done for you, no matter how small you think it is, because somebody needs to hear that. Somebody needs to hear that. And so I just want to share that with you. I want you to know that it doesn't matter what your past looks like. It doesn't matter how far, how far down you've been. God is in the business of redeeming broken messes. And so um, I'm going to close with um, something that I wrote in prison before I even knew that I was getting out. It's just from my heart. It's kind of like in spoken word format, if y'all know, if you know what that is. But I wrote this before I knew I was even getting out, and it is my testimony. And so I'll try to get through it without crying. Um, but I hope that it blesses your heart, and I hope that you leave tonight knowing that, that God loves you, that he would do anything in his power. He's all-powerful, so that means he will do anything to come and rescue you and to pull you from the pit. He will do whatever it takes to have you as fully his. And so I'm going I'm to do my spoken word, and then I'm going to hand it back over to Pastor Carrie. It's called redemption. What is redemption? Who is capable of redeeming a broken soul? The day is clear, but my emotions are not. Did I feel anything or was I trapped inside the numbness of a pill? My father, my precious dad, the man who endlessly bent over backwards to make sure that I always had. How does rage enter into a heart whose only point of reference was unconditional love from the start? I see him unmoving, not breathing, gone. I scream, but it's silent. My knees buckle, but I stand. How does my heart still pump, but not beat? What is redemption when the gun is in my hand? They ask me why. They still ask me why. I ask it too over and over and over. I hated me. The murderer me, the selfish, lost, uncontrollable me, the 16-year-old ungrateful me. Why wasn't it me? If I could play God, I would rewind it back just to freeze time so I could flip the gun around. What is redemption when he will always be gone? I hated me, the murderer me, the selfish, lost, uncontrollable me, the miserable me, the terrified, grasping for breath, unrecognizable me. Seconds, minutes, months, years, they blur by as I waste life behind fortified walls, wearing masks to drown out my past. It's so easy to blend within a never-changing whirlwind. I wasn't expecting to feel that longing, this yearning to be filled, to be real, to be known. God blindsided me. This unexpected, unexplainable, relentless love pulled at me. I scream, but it's silent. My knees buckle, but I stand. How does my heart still pump, but not beat? What does he want with the wretched mess that I am? But what's crazy? that that's not what God sees. What is redemption? 
think God loves me. Me, the murderer, me, the selfish, lost, uncontrollable, me, the miserable, me, the terrified, grasping for breath, unrecognizable, me, the shattered, me, the broken, dirty, unstable, me, the fake, me, the hide behind the lies, always catering to my pride, me. God loves me. What is redemption? That all of that is no longer who I am. I am born again, cleansed by the blood. Once was blind, but now I see what is this grace that has rescued me. That I can walk by faith and be set on fire in Jesus' name. That I can face this life unafraid, refusing to be a slave to shame. That is redemption. That the great I am calls me his own. I am transformed by the power of his word in the midst of a jaded world I have the reason to hold on redemption bought back set apart revived by mercy I am seen by the one who created eyes and I'm loved by the one who love defines I fix my gaze on the answer what is redemption his name is Jesus Would you stand with me tonight? Isaiah says that in all their suffering, he also suffered. And he personally rescued them. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them through all of their years. It's what God does. He takes people that need to be redeemed, and he does that very thing. And if the truth be told, I guess the truth is told, every single one of us are in need of that same redemption. Not one of us is good enough. Not one of us is always does it right. But God left the 99 others to come chase after me and after Amy and after you. Thank you for listening to today's message. We pray that it challenges you to dig deeper into the Word of God and grows your faith. If you would like to reach out to us, please visit our website at www.mybethel.net. Thank you.